Veritas Wealth is an independent financial planning business focused on managing wealth. Today's conversation is with author Bruce Woodfield discussing his book, The Upside of Down. Welcome, everybody. My name is Barry Omani. I'm a certified financial planner professional, and I'm also a member of the Voluntaba Association. And we're delighted to introduce an award-winning radio star. He is an an emerging television star, editor (laughs) of the Financial Mail. And when lockdown happened, I don't know how it happened, but he's suddenly become a very successful author. Bruce Whitfield, welcome. Thank you. Yes, um, the book launched and we had exclusive books at Hyde Park in Johannesburg, exclusive books at the V&A Waterfront. We had Thursday and Tuesday events lined up. And the next thing, the bookshops all closed, went into lockdown. And, you know, you could go to your local exclusive books and put your hands around your face and look through the window and press your nose up against the window and see these books stacked 10, 15 deep on the shelves with nowhere to go because nobody could buy them. And I w- worried that this was going to be the ultimate of pulp nonfiction because <laughs> <laughs> uh, the book was all going to be sent back to the printers and was going to be recycled and turned into something useful like, I don't know, Beano comics or something like that. So now, Bruce, you, you're very familiar to all of us because of Cape Talk and, and 702, but you're always at the other side of the microphone. So who are you and where are you from? Oh, personal questions. This is very awkward, Barry. Um, If you can pronounce it, I will carry on uh, with with the podcast. If you can't pronounce it, this podcast ends here and now. Okay, you ready? Ready. Fulyunskruen. Fulyunskruen. Anyway, yes, Fulyunskruen in the Free State. Uh, That's where I'm from. It's my favorite party trick, but it's not bad for an Irishman. Okay. Uh, I grew up on a farm in the Free State. I was sent to boarding school at the age of seven and a half and was anglicized, tamed, and uh, had the edges knocked off at me uh, at school in in Grahamstown. And then um, ended up going to Rhodes University in Grahamstown because I knew where everything was. It was, uh, it was just easier that way. And they had a journalism school. I came out of journalism school, joined 702 as a news reporter, did that over the 1994 elections, got to meet Nelson Mandela several times, I'll have you know, and to view him a couple of times. Uh, my kids don't believe me because there's no selfie. But, and they also don't believe there was an era of life before selfies. It, it, if, it didn't, if there's no selfie, it didn't happen. And uh, then off to London, worked in uh, London radio for, for a couple of years. My wife got an opportunity back in South Africa. We returned. Long story short, 20 years ago, went into financial journalism, found it interesting, less because of the financial statement stuff and the accounting stuff that gets you guys excited, but more about the personalities and the characters and the people that make business work. And and that's really what captivated me in understanding the mindsets and the capabilities and what makes really bright, intelligent, capable people invest billions of rand in the hope and the expectation that it's going to deliver a return one day and understanding those characters. And that's really what uh, is my key motivator in doing what I do. So the book is called The Upside of Down. So what made you write a book? I thought it would be a good idea. Don't do that. It's not a good idea. It's 
painful and agonizing. Um, it all sort of originated, I think, from the fact that I wanted to do some public speaking. And um, I was always wondering what value I could add as a public speaker. And I certainly didn't want to get into the motivational speaking. Yes, 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 you can. Your inner power. You are your master of your destiny. Nonsense that we see um, and, and does very well, by the way, globally. Yeah. Um, but the catalyst was really the 9th of December, 2015. And uh, when Jacob Zuma fired and Tlantla Nene, who was then the finance minister, and brought in the hapless Des van Royen. And nobody knew who Des van Royen was. And uh, that was the start of it. Um, and then I went to Davos in uh, January 2016 to the most pitiful South African gathering I've ever been to. Uh, actually, no, the most pitiful since until last year, well, so this year, actually, since January 2020. Um, and it was just a country that was browbeaten and broken and a country that just had lost confidence in itself in a nanosecond. But what occurred to me in the moment that Jacob Zuma fired in Tlanta Nene was that he had exposed himself for all to see precisely what the big game plan was. And the big game plan was not South Africa. The big game plan was friends, family, and acquaintances and associates. And all Jacob Zuma cared about was himself and his family. And he was going to be damn sure that he was going to use his presidency to benefit those nearest and dearest to him, of which we know there are many. And he needed uh, to do that in a hurry. And he was using his presidency in order to do that. And part of the game plan was to put uh, hapless sods into government positions where he could issue instructions or instructions could be issued via him as to what they should be doing. And the state capture story played out. Suddenly it occurred to me that we were listening to one version of South Africa and we perpetually listen to one version of South Africa. And that's the going down the tubes version of South Africa. And it's an easy story to tell because there is so much evidence that points to a complete failure of the state to, to run and govern and to work for the future and just you're feathering your own nest scenario in South Africa where uh, South Africa invariably is going to go down the tubes and uh, whether or not that is South Africa's fate I don't know uh, but what I do know is that we don't have a one-dimensional country what I do know is that there are remarkable people who do remarkable things in our country each and every single day the vast majority of whom go unnoticed because we don't praise sing entrepreneurs. We don't praise sing people who risk capital and start businesses. We don't praise sing people who leave corporate and go out and follow a dream and actually create a business and employ 10, 20, 50, 100 people, 1,000 people. In the case of Brian Joffe, 150,000 people. We don't sing the praises of nearly enough of those people because they're harder stories to tell. And frankly, if it bleeds, it leads as the media narrative. And we don't have a broader look of South Africa. So I built a series of talks over years on that sort of basis. And eventually it culminated in the, the what is she? She is the chief executive. That's the job. Um, at Pan McMillan, Terry Morris, giving me a call one day saying, you really need to write a book. And I went, sure, Terry, one day. That was in 2017. And eventually uh, my friend Pablo Fatidis dragged me to a lunch with Terry I was a bit early. And so I sat and did a spidergram and said, okay, if I was going to write a book, what would it look like? And it started out with a little circle in the middle with an unrepeatable title. And I then just did a whole series of you know, 15, 20 chapters as to what I would want to cover in that book. And it all was referenced from the series of talks that I'd done. And um, ah. she came in, she said, I like that. 
And I said, fine, I'll write it. That was in September last year. She said, okay, six months. I went, no, 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 I'll give it to you at the beginning of December because if I don't have a deadline, I don't do anything. So, and I delivered the manuscript on the 2nd of December. So is it possible after yesterday, even now, for entrepreneurs to thrive in South Africa? Uh, I think I think so, and I'm, I'm going to qualify it in, in many respects. So yesterday was really interesting for many respects. I don't think we learned anything new. I wish we did learn some new things. We didn't learn anything bad that was new. Already the debt-to-GDP levels were leaked earlier on in the week. And there, there were no secrets in this emergency budget that came out yesterday. What we do know is that there's going to be a massive budget shortfall. Now, the budget shortfall is being calculated on what happened in the first month, in April. In April, there was a tax shortfall of 32 billion rand. And we know why that happened. The economy stopped. It had a big cholesterol-fueled stoppage, um, like an artery going to the heart. And everything, I mean, everything stopped overnight, except some, some petrol stations and food retailers and the black market for anything you couldn't get in the shops. And the rest of the economy did stop. Um, you know, uh, events that I was, you know, scheduled to do in April, May, um, June, July, August, September, suddenly I just, the cancellation notices came through, boom, boom, boom. And once it wasn't because of something I said on the radio, um, it was, <laughs> it was all because you know, this, uh, everyone was petrified and there was this absolute drought of any business activity. So I think we, we're looking at a 300 billion rand shortfall for the year based on what has happened in a single month. And I'm not too sure that that's necessarily accurate. I also think, however, that the finance minister has been conservative when he says this economy will contract by 7.2%. National Treasury always overestimates its uh, potential success and always underestimates the downside. So I think we'll get at least a 7% contraction in the economy this year, simply because even as economic activity begins to pick up, our confidence in going out and doing stuff is severely limited. So there's no doubt that our budget deficit is going to go to hell in a handbasket. We are going to see a deficit of 15, 16%. We're going to see debt to GDP of a hundred and something percent. Again, by global standards, not unusual, but we were uncomfortable at 60% and heading towards 70, and now it's almost twice as bad as that. And But the, the two things that I heard yesterday, which were really important, and, and I can't emphasize these nearly enough, and I, I say it on page 216 and 217 of the book, and Jaco Marie sent me an email the other day to remind me of what I'd said on those pages, because he'd bothered reading all the way through. Um, and uh, he said to me, you know, South Africa needs a crisis, and we all always unfortunately need a crisis to bring ourselves back from the brink of self-destruction. We've needed crises all through our history of the last 30, 40, 50, 60 years. We go to the edge, we look over the precipice and we go, ah, not today, and we pull ourselves back. And yeah. so the crisis that I imagined was going to be a fiscal crisis that we were inevitably slipping and sliding towards. And because of the disparities within the ANC, Tito Boweni and Sir Ramaphosa wouldn't have any ammunition to use to explain to colleagues within the ANC, guys, 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 we really need to do something about this. What COVID-19 has done and the sudden stop that we've had in this economy have done is that they have forced the hand of the ANC, which is desperately uncomfortable with dealing with the economy. We know this because that's why the economy is in the mess that it is in. 
And they've had to accept a couple of things, that there's going to be, have to be higher than ever collaboration between public and private partnerships, not in the way that the Guptas did private-public partnerships, legitimate public-private partnerships into the future. And also, we are going to need to go to the IMF and the World Bank. Back in 1992, the ANC got a policy document, which they, they love policy documents and referring back to things that are two and three decades old, whether or not the cases are still relevant or not, or even politically relevant or not. And back then, they were saying, well, the World Bank and the IMF are the lenders of last resort. They go in and you lose your sovereignty when you go to these uh, lenders of last resort. And therefore, we can never give up our sovereignty. We've spent so much time, so many decades, so much blood has flown in order to give us control of this economy. We cannot relinquish it into the hands of the capitalists, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This is 1992, uh, a very different time, a very different world and very different multilateral lenders, of course. They've transformed over time. South Africa now is playing catch-up, and the ANC has been forced to concede that we don't have a choice. And again, you may say that that's desperately negative. We should never have to go to these guys in the first place. But the point is we're in a mess, and we do have to. And what we've got is a political realization that we must, and probably the sooner we do it, the better, because you leave it too long. Anybody who's ever been in financial trouble knows that the longer you stay in denial, the harder it is to dig yourself out. And as a financial advisor, you would have seen countless people in that position as well. So we're going, hopefully earlier rather than later, and trying to mitigate the problems. We didn't see from the finance minister, and this was irritating yesterday, any dramatic plans to cut. Um, uh, uh, But I suspect that that's coming. He did the hospital pass to his colleague in in charge of civil servants. It's very hard to keep track of everybody in government today to say good luck to him. He's now got to go and negotiate with civil servants. But what have we not heard? Who have we not heard much from in the last month and a half, two months. Uh, We've not heard very much at all from trade unions. Uh, We've heard noisy trade unions around SAA, but we haven't heard civil service unions. We haven't seen the huge pushback that was happening after the February budget where the finance minister laid out the brutal realities of South Africa, where there was still a prospect of of a recovery. We don't have that. But the trade unions are, are a lot quieter than they were back then, and perhaps a bit more accepting that the fact that the landscape has changed so fundamentally that the hard decisions that I wish South Africa could have taken three, four, five, ten years ago finally have to be taken because there is no choice. And, and yeah, so in that environment, is there place for entrepreneurs, I think was the question. Yes, there is always place for entrepreneurs. There's always place for problem solvers. I'm going to ask you this question, and then this is testing whether you read the book and testing whether you're paying attention to the world around you. Up until November last year, at the Sunday Times Top 100 Companies Awards, what were the top three performing shares on the JSE? PSG. PSG, okay. NAS Paris. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't remember the third one. Well, you're wrong, and you're wrong, and... <laughs> Uh, by not answering the third one, you, you're wrong there as well. So that's naught out of three. Uh, uh, you're not entirely wrong in the first one. Your assumption of PSG is pretty close. It's Capitech. Um, okay, Ca- right. Capi- Cap- Capitech was the top performer over five years to November 2019. Uh, in number two place was Clicks, a retailer, Clicks. Uh, and number three was Transaction Capital, micro lender, right. debt collector, and funder of South African taxis. Naspas was in position number five, so you haven't completely embarrassed yourself. Um, Thank you. What have, what have those three got in common? The, the, the one thing that they've got in common 
is that not one of them has invested a single penny out of, outside of South Africa in the last 20 years. They've all been wholly focused on South Africa. Capitec, 20 years old, spotted a gap in the financial services sector in South Africa and wedged into that gap and has gradually opened up the market to its particular version of micro-lending, retail banking, now into business banking with mercantile and increasingly partnering with people to offer funeral policies and other, and other products. They're gradually expanding the footprint of what they do, having started from finding a tiny, tiny niche that was uh, available to them in the early 2000s. Clicks, David Neal comes from Boots in the United Kingdom and unlike other local retailers, doesn't look outwards but looks inwards and says, what is the retail opportunity for this business, which at the time would have had five or 600 stores. What is the retail opportunity in South Africa? It's mass market, it's health and beauty, it's aspirational. And you know what? We chuck a pharmacy in the back and people come to the pharmacy and then on the way out there buy six chocolates with the diabetes medicine they've got. Or whatever it is. It's, it's a weird business model. And, and they can get a kettle and a toaster as well. I once described it to David Neal as the nicest general dealers I've ever been into. He, he didn't speak to me for a year after that. But um, then transaction capital, again, serves a niched South African market and it cherry picks the very best in what well, most of us would look at the South African taxi industry and say, you would you want to lend money to who? Are you completely crazy? But they fund 15% of the taxis on the roads. They put devices into the taxis that limit the way the taxis drive and measure the way the taxis drive. And they then will, will lend according to the risk on that basis. These three companies, South African companies investing in South Africa for South African growth. And you go, it, it's so counterintuitive because for the last 20 years, there's been this massive uh, exit of capital uh, out of South Africa and it's old mutual with its hundreds of billions of rand that has been peed up against bad insurance companies in the United States, rubbish insurance companies all over Europe. I'm sure there were some gems within Scandia, but it was just, it was trying to be global and huge. It was a, a victim of its own desires of global grandeur, for example. Um, and it's a massive embarrassment to this day, so much so that they've, you know, shut it, they've sold everything off uh, and then come back home again, because even after 20 years of gallivanting around the globe, 60, 65% of their profits still came from South Africa. They just had a much bigger expense base. So is there room for entrepreneurs? Of course there's room for entrepreneurs. I mean, what year did Brian Jockey start Bidvest and what year, uh, it was the same year, uh, as Robbie Brosen uh, started Nando's. Uh, it was 1987. Now, 1987, we defaulted on our debt. P.W. Buerta was executive state president. He had a security council that could act with impunity. People were disappearing off the streets. We had all kinds of travesties happening. There was a civil war on the streets of South Africa, and there was no hope. You talk to G.T. Ferreira and Paul Harris and Laurie Dippenard, and you say to them, surely that must have been the hardest time in your history. I mean, these are guys who were in business together for 40 years. And G.T. Ferreira's eyes light up and he goes, it was the best time ever because there was capitulation everywhere. And we were in a position where we could raise capital and we did and we bought businesses. That is where we had our best growth. And it's so hard to sell that idea that it is possible now because in the moment we're massively risk averse. But in the moment, and, and you've seen what Pepcor has done by raising capital now, and we've seen what Mr. Price has done by raising capital now, 
Transaction Capital finalized a book bill this week as well, and there have been a couple of others. We're beginning to see these capital raisings by liquid companies with strong balance sheets who are, oh, no, we're just, we're just bolstering even further. Rubbish. You don't dilute yourself unless you see opportunity. And so I suspect that there are people who are girding their loins, and you do need to gird your loins in deep uncertainty, to look for opportunities in an environment where asset prices are falling and falling hard. Growth Point this week warning about a 20% drop in property prices. You know, you just got to go around the shops if you dare, masked and sanitized to the hilt. Uh, I recommend you go to the shops and especially to bookstores uh, and, and look for the, uh, the top shelf and, and just pick, pick a book as long as it's black with a yellow and, and white writing on the cover. Um, you buy that one uh, and you, you, you go to the shops and you realize just how little activity there is. Footfalls at the VNA waterfront are 20% of what they were before this crisis. You know, it's tough, but our history teaches us that out of chaos comes opportunity. And as hard as it is to see now, I don't know why it would be different this time. And Bruce, just to prove that I did read the book, um, <laughs> you, you, you told a story where you were somewhere in England and you were unusually in a pub or coming out of a pub. And, no, the only, and the you only spotted part of, a whole lot of things. Give the, us that the only, story. The only part of that story that is unusual is that I've had only one beer. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it was a pint of Boddington's because Boddington's is the cream of Manchester. Um, and I came out of this pub. It was about hopper three in the afternoon. The sun was setting and I was thinking how miserable it was. And this little white truck came trundling down the road. And I went, oh, that's nice. It looks just like it is a bit best truck. And had a Bidvest logo on the side. But that Bidvest business now, of course, is Bidcorp. But, but the, the Bidvest truck sort of trundles down the road. And that's lovely. And it, it goes uh, down the road. And I'm just thinking to myself, isn't it amazing that I've just been in this pub, which has got 20 beers on tap. And of that, half a dozen, maybe more, of beers that are brewed by S.A.B. Miller at the time. And there's, uh, in there was Foster's and Tisky from Poland and Ursus from Romania. And it was just this wonderful array of beers on tap that were brewed by S.A.B. Miller. Grolsch was there, for example. Pilsner Urquell was there. And we know the S.A.B. Miller story so well about this little company from South Africa that goes and becomes, for a little while, before A.B. bought InBev, was the biggest brewer in the world, and then A.B. InBev came and subsumed it and has basically lost the entire value of what it paid for SAB in the last, you know, over the last four years anyway, simply because they're just too blimmin' big and complicated and they've got too much debt, like so many other companies in the world, uh, on their balance sheets. But no sooner had this little Bidvest truck disappeared down the road, and in the gloomy twilight of the day, there is a Nando's. And I just like, this is the most amazing thing. I've got to contact Robbie Brosen, I've got to contact Brian Joffe, and I've got to tell them that I've seen these things and in this confluence. And it then struck me that had I been in London and I'd gone onto the London underground, I would have seen the Investec Zebra or a taxi coming past with the Investec Zebra coming past. And it's just, there are lots of South African companies that are globalized and were boxing above their weight. Um, and so that is again, another catalyst for, hold on a second, if this place is so dysfunctional and so broken and so, uh, so obscenely crap, why do we generate so many really good ideas and so many globally competitive businesses? There was a disconnect that I've tried to connect in the book. And Bruce, who are the three up-and-coming entrepreneurs that, that we all should be aware of and keeping an eye out for? 
Oh, I couldn't possibly tell you. They are the topic of the next book. Uh, <laughs> but the, I, I mentioned a couple of people I've come across, and I'm now intensifying my studies because I think I've only scratched the surface here. A couple of my favorites, and one shouldn't have favorites, but there's a guy called Katleho Mapai. Katleho is a guy who grew up in exile, came back uh, and went to UCT, and in the queue met a guy that he'd grown up on the streets of Kailicha with, and he said, what are you doing? Oh, no, I'm doing electrical engineering. And uh, Katleho went, oh, so am I. And they did their studies and became friends with two other guys who um, they all went their various ways into the cell phone industry and later on all got together again. And they decided that the payment system in South Africa excludes far too many people. If you go to a bank and you want one of their payment devices, you want to point a sale device, you've got to fill in lots of forms, you've got to wait a month. And it just is so obstructive. So they started thinking like cell phone operators and they made their, uh, their devices available over the counter, and you could effectively go into a Yoko store. There are not that many of them, but you can go in, you can buy one, and that afternoon you can be trading and you can have people, you'll be attached via a cell phone network to the payment system and you will get money paid into your account. The moment somebody swipes a card or taps a card, they've now got that functionality uh, on the Yoko devices. They've got 100,000 of these devices in the market and lots of small businesses, if you go to a market, they're using these guys. They've also become the very best data aggregators on small business in South Africa because they've got all this information. They're working out ways of using that and uh, providing greater business services and the greater business services to, uh, to the broad market. And then there's Stacey Brewer. Stacey Brewer is another one of my favorites. She wove her way over to me at a, a, an end-of-year party at the Gordon Institute of Business Science one year, probably about 2013, and over a glass of Chardonnay told me how I was going to be interviewing her one day, and I said, yes, yes, of course I will be. And a year later, she and one of her classmates launched Spark Schools. Now, Spark Schools had one campus for about two or three years as they figured out education, but they did something called blended learning. And they know that South Africa's education system is dysfunctional. They know it's deeply unequal and unfair. They also know that for two and a half thousand rand, uh, which is roughly what government spends per child on education in government schools in South Africa, surely if you get it right, you could be delivering at that price considerably better education outcomes and you can be still making a profit. And it's what Kuro had found before and many others. But what uh, Stacey Brewer found was they could do precisely that. And at last count, they had 21 schools. They opened their first high school this year to accommodate all the kids that had grown up within the Spark Schools network. 15,000 kids, 1,000 teachers were employed at Spark Schools. And the last time I saw her face-to-face, I saw Stacey at a school in Bramley in Johannesburg, which is not too far from Alexandra. And there was a a school there, an old government school that had been abandoned. The Department of Education in Gauteng weren't using it anymore. And so Stacey went, could I rent that from you, please? And renting all kinds of interesting spaces in all kinds of places, in the Maboneng precinct, for example, in Joburg and others. There's one school in the Western Cape in Stellenbosch. And now these 16,000 kids being educated. And through this lockdown, they've been able to maintain a level of education for school kids, which kids in government schools haven't got. And so they've kept their kids engaged. They'll have some drop-off. I mean, parents have lost their jobs and fallen on tough times, but they've got huge interest. Family foundations around the world, very keen to solve problems in developing markets and see the potential of this particular model. Uh, And then another one is Aisha Pandor. Now, Aisha happens to be the daughter of Naledi Pandor, who's the Minister of International Relations. But this is so fundamentally on the opposite spectrum of where government thinks on business. And that is 
And she created a, an application called Sweep South. And she is married to a Swedish guy called Alan Rubich. And Alan is the techno whizzy nerd. And Alan and her created Sweep South because they had a problem and they needed to solve the problem. And that problem was they were having a whole bunch of family members coming around for lunch one day um, and the domestic worker was away and they needed some help to tidy up. They've got small kids, typical sort of scenario where you just need some help and they didn't know where to go. And they went, you know what? Last year we were in the United States because this is the, the genesis of this business is 2012, 2013. And so it was in the early days of Lyft and Uber and these guys. But they'd taken a Lyft cab and they went, imagine if you could get domestic help as easily as ordering an Uber. And they went and got these, uh, developed an application uh, for smartphones in a time where most people in South Africa didn't have smartphones and certainly domestic workers wouldn't have had smartphones because these are Uber elite, very, very expensive devices. But Alan being a nerd and a techno whiz kind of figured out that the cost of these devices has to drop over time. And at some point in the future, the company could get sponsorship or could co-fund, could co-fund these devices to enable these women to work and they could pay it off over time and they'd work it out. And so they delivered the Sweep South platform, which at last count now, 20,000 women who now work when it suits them at a rate that suits them for the people they want to work for. Um, and in South Africa, that domestic work relationship is often so dysfunctional and so abusive that it is not healthy at all. And they've democratized domestic work and given it a huge level of dignity because actually these are women now with a service to deliver and they go in when at an appointed time, they leave it at an appointed time, they rate their employer, their employer rates them and there is this wonderful check and balance ecosystem and they've just launched, courtesy of 50 million rand they raised last year, a new platform which they call Sweep South Direct which is for house sitters and handymen and babysitters and all of that sort of thing yeah. on the same sort of principle because yeah. using tech to deliver solutions for South African problems. So are there opportunities yeah. for entrepreneurs? Of course there are. It's interesting you said that about Sweep South because with COVID-19, they, they've actually just entered the carer, you know, that a carer will go to your home. So it's a qualified carer, uh, which is rated through the system. The second one is for everyone listening is uh, the next time you're at a farmer's market when you're, <laughs> when you're losing all your money so quickly with your family spending it all, um, watch most of those traders are actually using Yoko devices. Uh, yeah. and, and, and for those who have any relationship with Ellen Gray, the Ellen Gray Foundation have, have actually been funding or, or one of the share, I don't know if it's a funding or a shareholding, but it's one of the private equity deals that, that, that they've been involved in. And all the people out there who are going to go and buy your book now, that story about the Spark schools was, was fascinating, especially when you compare it to private schools and semi-government schools uh, that a lot of us uh, would, would have our kids at. And it is interesting. And I, I went to an assembly at that Bramley campus of Spark schools, and I have never been to a school assembly like that. I don't know when, when you grew up, Barry, and um, what school assemblies were like. We're covered in priests and you were flogged before breakfast just because you were looking forward to a flogging because that was the highlight of the day. So, <laughs> growing up in full Yunskruen was a bit like that, where being beaten by your teacher was more palatable than being spoken to by your teacher because you didn't understand what they said. Um, and um, <laughs> the Spark School thing, just the kids and the enthusiasm and the enjoyment and the participation. And it's like a rock concert. And these kids are singing songs and are, it's all, you know, and the teacher's going, so Spark School, Bradley, 
how are you doing? We're doing great. Bum, 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 bum. And it's this thing, thing. And then, are you ready? Yes, we're ready. Are you ready, ready, ready? Ready, ready, ready. Ready, ready, ready. Ready, ready, ready. And so, you know what kids are like first thing in the morning? They wake up and they're full of energy and they're full of sillies. And this, this sort of half-hour process of delivering information, ensuring the kids are on board, ensuring the kids are engaged, gets rid of the sillies. They shake all their, their, their bits out. And then they go to the classroom and they're calm. And then they're ready to learn. I'm involved in a project called Cool Play, which does which trains to teach life skills after school in the township schools. And there's a physiological thing going on there because you've actually opened up their pathways. They're actually ready to learn. It's not just that they've got rid of their energy. They're actually they've opened up the, the path in their brain and they're ready to go now. You're a fine figure of a man. You're a bit of an athlete. I'm sure you'll go for a jog of a morning or a paddle on the ocean or a swim in the sea or whatever. You know you have a better day when you've done that first thing in the morning. I mean, it's, it, there's no rocket science to this stuff. And we're, generally, you put kids on a bus, they get to school, they stand in a line, they sit down, they shut up, and then you put them in a classroom and you expect them to be engaged. It doesn't yeah. work like that. So Stacey Brewer and the, the guys of Spark Schools have got something fundamentally interesting going on. Okay, so I have two questions now. One is, you mentioned a few times, I think in the book, another book called Factfulness. A, a number of my friends have actually told me that I need to go and read this book as well. Why is that book important? Uh, okay, so Hans Rosling, the late Hans Rosling, was a medical doctor. And he went, uh, and so important right now from a point of view of COVID-19, and I'll get to that in a second, because this was written four or five years ago, so it's long before COVID-19. But he'd been a medical doctor in the DRC during one of the Ebola outbreaks. And Ebola happened and everybody panicked. And what Hans Rosling did was he stepped back and he started collecting data. Where were the outbreaks happening? If you brought people to the clinic, what happened? And infections spread really quickly within the clinic system. So you don't bring them to a clinic. And he figured out that by using data and using facts, you could actually get far better health outcomes by treating people differently and by using your health system resources differently. And he started challenging governments to do this. And he eventually got onto the speaking circuit and he would do some very simple questions. And he would ask his audience's questions. He would, first, he would, he would talk about how unfair the world is and how unequal the world is. And he would show pictures of informal settlements. And in South Africa, you would just you know, uh, take an aerial shot of Kailicha or whatever the case is. And he would say to his audiences, okay, so over the last 20 years, has global poverty stayed the same? Has global poverty doubled? Has global poverty halved? And the vast majority of people, because they were shown the images, they were, they were set up to fail, immediately went either it stayed the same or it's doubled. Nobody could accept that. In fact, because of all the images that we see in our mass media and because of the way we tell stories, that in fact, global poverty over the last 20 years had halved. Now, COVID-19 may change some of those dynamics, but his basic philosophy was not everything is better all the time, but on balance, more things improve for more people than things that go wrong for fewer people over time. And invariably, human progress then means that human beings are better off over time. And scientific progress, education progress, access to resources, all of these things have fundamentally changed. And what Hans Rosling does is 
he challenges our biases, he challenges our preconceptions. And so what I did in the book was I posed a list of 15 questions or thereabouts, simple questions, I thought, about South Africa. And I, I mean, while we're here and while I have the book conveniently, I don't know how it always happens, but I always have it in front of me. And I said to our audience today, what was the inflation rate in 2004? Um, and I gave you a couple of options. I mean, 2004, think about it, 9-11, dot-com bubble bursting. It, it's a, a rough time in the world. 2004, the inflation rate in South Africa. Remember, uh, Chris Stoltz had had a big inflation problem. Tito Mboweni then inherited a reserve bank that was hugely pressurized. But anyway, the inflation rate in 2004, was it 18.7% or was it 4.7%, which is roughly where we've been quite recently, or was it... 1.4%. Now, the answer to that question is C, 1.4%. And for a lot of people, they go, but we've never had inflation. inflation that low. In South Africa is a high inflation country. We might have given you the benefit of the doubt and gone for 4.7, but actually our bias may have actually pushed us to 18.7 because we do remember in the distant past that we have gone through periods of high inflation and they destroyed value and it's been devastating. So people are then you know, more biased towards a belief of higher inflation, but we had low inflation at 1.4%. In fact, inflation was a bit too low. I mean, you want a little bit of inflation in, in a financial system like South Africa's. And what was happening at that time was interest rates around the world. Alan Greenspan was slashing interest rates. We had Tito Boweni cutting interest rates at the Reserve Bank and doing so aggressively as well. We were seeing economic growth rates of 4 5% every year during those years. We were creating jobs. We were doing what was possible. Yet when we ask ourselves a question of what something was like 10 or 15 years ago, we immediately use our current emotions. We immediately use our current environment and we transpose that on things that have happened in the past, or we use it to try and forecast what's going to happen in the future. And more often than not, we are horribly wrong on both counts. We look back badly, and we certainly forecast incredibly badly, either because we're overly optimistic or we're overly negative. And there's a guy called Robert Schiller. He's an economist. He's a Nobel Prize winning economist. And he, he's written a book in which he also talks essentially about facts. It's essentially the same sort of thing. But he talks about the stories that we tell ourselves, this idea of narrative economics. Uh, and he looks at social media and he says, you know, one of the great downsides of social media is that it creates these bubbles around us and it creates this ever-present negativity. And when you live in those bubbles, when you live in that world of perpetual uncertainty and negativity, it affects your mindset. You become like that. And, and then the outcomes that you predict based on what you see on your social media feeds is a bit like the outcomes that you predict when you go to the same bribes with the same people all the time and you are all feeding off each other. I mean, something, I mean, Gidon Novik, I was chatting to him last week and Gidon, his dad started Comair just after World War II. Uh, Gidon went off, became a chartered accountant, became employed by the company, became the joint chief executive of the company and started Kalula.com, became South Africa's first low-cost airline. And Gidon is now looking in this environment at starting a brand new low-cost airline. And I said to him, Gidon, Gidon, Gidon. Now, you know, I, I realize that, you know, there are some people who just can't shake airlines out of their blood. It's a weird ego trip. It's a, it's a crazy industry. But people who love airlines love airlines and want to go back. And I suspect he's talking to a whole bunch of people who, who've lost their jobs in the airline industry recently, and they're all keen to go back. 
And he thinks he's devising a business model that can work in an environment where fly sapphire is now the dominant carrier in South Africa, where mango is going to replace domestically all of the SAA flights. Uh, and these are flights that are flying at 16% occupancies at the moment, by the way. So, I mean, they, you know, they're flying a fraction of the flights and they're still flying at a, a fraction full. And uh, he goes, well, if you hang around with the kind of people I hang around with, we're all optimistic. And therefore, we see opportunities. And it rings so, so true throughout history. Where and, and all of the big studies, big American studies, the scientific studies that look at billionaires, they look at what makes billionaires different from the rest of us. What made them different? And sure, they're clever. Sure, they're charming. Most of them, some of them, a couple of them. Nice people generally because they're rich and don't have to care about a damn thing in the world. And yes, they're connected and they probably had some startup capital and they were quite privileged to start up. All of that stuff, yes, is true. But the one overwhelming characteristic that seems to have the biggest influence on their success is that they are, by their nature, optimists. Now, being an optimist doesn't mean that you're an idiot. It doesn't mean that you have a Pollyanna-ish attitude to the world. It doesn't mean that you ignore the noise. It means that you take a, a more of a Bidvest philosophy, if you like. And there's a, a poster in every single Bidvest facility in the world. And it says, Bidvest does not participate in the recession. That's idiocy, right? I mean, that's lunacy. I mean, there is a recession. If this economy contracts by 7% this year, the economy contracts by 7%. Government stops spending, big business stops spending, small businesses, uh, jobs, pipelines, supply lines dry up. Well, if you're Bidvest and you are mighty, and you, you, but, but you got, they got to that position using this mindset and using this philosophy, if you see every a pothole as an obstacle as rather than as an obstacle that you need to navigate well your competitors are probably navigating those potholes and if you're not navigating well then you're falling behind and your competitors are going through maybe occasionally they drive into a pothole and hopefully it's not too big and they can reverse out and carry on but if you stay still in a crisis and if you panic in a crisis and if you treat the recession as something that is a constraint rather than something that you need to manage and act on, well, then you simply, you, you might as well go to bed and stay there and, and hope you're still alive when it's all over. And that, I think, is the fundamental difference. I mean, optimism is a critical factor. The ability to navigate crisis is absolutely pivotal. And those are the things that make people who have succeeded in this environment in far tougher times, I would argue, than now. Now's rough. But in far tougher times in our past, people have built and grown and succeeded despite the environment in which they live and operate. Okay, so I have one comment and one last question. So my comment is, after reading the book, I just loved the positioning of it. I think it was, it was such an unusual angle to read a South African book now that came at that angle. And it's, it wasn't like silly positiveness and optimism and, and, and disregarding the truth. It, it went after the real story. And I think you did that well. And I also found it just so educational to actually see how capitalism works, it, how it forms and reforms and morphs into something else. But it's, it's just constantly on the move. And as, as you said at the start, I mean, you must be daft to go near an airline at the moment, but actually maybe this is the greatest opportunity in the last 50 years to go near an airline, potentially. So I love that about it. And I think it's a great read. It has some fascinating insights into the Nene, that, that evening of Nene. I thought that was a, an amazing 
an, an interesting one. Now, how I want to finish is there is a note under the light switch at your kid's school. <laughs> I loved it. Uh, and yeah, I mean, my, my, by the way, uh, the results of the DNA tests aren't back yet, but we've gone for <laughs> DNA tests because uh, having spent three months in lockdown with my kids, I can't believe they're mine. They're remarkable. Um, and uh, yeah, it's 50-50 rubbish. They're 90% their mother. Um, anyway, they are very musical and they play uh, complicated musical instruments. They've got this lovely little music room at school. And the one day I took them in, dropped them off with the instruments and stuff. And as I left, I saw this little piece of paper scribbled underneath the light switch. And I said to my kids, read that. Okay, the one was too small, can't read. So that was unfair. But um, it says, dear optimists, pessimists, and realists. And you know these people, Barry. You know, people come into your, uh, into your office and they say to you, Barry, I'm worried about the future. You know, I'm really an optimist. But uh, they're coming to your office and say, you know, Barry, I, I, I'm not, I really want to be an optimist. I, I, I'm not a pessimist. I, I'm just a realist. And essentially, it means that you're just a pessimist. Um, it's a, you're pessimists, optimists, and realists. While you were arguing about the level of the glass, I drank it. Regards, the opportunist. And that struck me in that moment as being the absolute truism for entrepreneurs in South Africa. The founder of Waze, one of the founders of Waze, was actually at the Sunday Times Top 100 Awards in November 2018, uh, Mark Barnes told me the story, so I didn't see it myself, but he, this guy, Yuri, somebody or other, said to this gathering, he said, you know what, we set about trying to solve a problem, and the problem was navigation and traffic, and cities around the world more and more congested, so we decided that we were going to solve the misery of traffic, and what we've done is by creating ways and making it easier for people to find their way around cities that they either do know or don't know and they're looking for rat runs, we've solved the problem. We have solved misery in their lives. And if you solve misery, you make a lot more money than out of creating comfort. And again, I think it's fairly true. And where is there in the world right now, I mean, there may be more miserable places, but South Africa feels fairly miserable enough. Uh, that we need solutions to problems. And I mean, each and every day, there are a multitude of problems that need solving. And frankly, they're bright, capable entrepreneurs who are in the process of solving as many of those problems as they possibly can, because in solving those problems lies commercial opportunity. And you get the double benefit of not only solving the problem, but potentially making some money out of doing that job as well. Bruce, thank you very much. Thank you very much for your time today. Thanks for sharing it. I'm sure everybody's going to head out and buy The Upside of Dawn by Bruce Whitfield. It is genuinely a great read, very informative and quite inspirational in places. And Bruce, thank you again. If you see Wilbur Smith, please tell him I'm looking for him because he's still at number one on the national charts and he's keeping The Upside of Dawn out of number one spot. And that's uh... desperately frustrating. He shops in the shops near me sometimes. And if I see him again, I'll have a word myself. But if you see Wilbur, okay. tell him to watch his back. <laughs> okay. Goodbye. Take care, Bruce. Thank you. Goodbye, everybody. Thanks for listening. Veritas Wealth. Real people, real conversations. A place where money and life meet.